Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> You've touched down on Planet Diffusion Science Radio, this solar system's best source of science news and reviews. I'm Ed Pollitt. On this edition, Patrick Ruby interviews Dr Brian Boyle about the expansion of the universe, and Kachina Allen talks about the science of marriage. But first up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe. <laughs> Gene popsicles have been melted to find 8 million-year-old germs and grow them in a Rutgers University laboratory. Scientists extracted DNA and bacteria from Antarctic ice between 3 and 5 metres below the surface of a glacier. They took five samples that were estimated to be between 100,000 and 8 million years old, based on how far the glacier had moved down the valley. The 100,000-year-old organisms grew fast in culture, but only one type of bacteria could be found in the 8 million year old sample. It took 10 times as long to grow as the younger sample. They found that the older the samples, the more the DNA of the bacteria were broken down. After a million years, half of the DNA had been broken down by cosmic rays. Cosmic rays are weak X-rays from the sky that the Earth is exposed to all the time. Magnetic fields can give some protection from cosmic rays. Earth's magnetic fields are weaker at the poles, so the cosmic rays are stronger in Antarctica. Paul Fakowski, who led the study, says that as global warming continues, glaciers will flow faster into the ocean, releasing new organisms as they melt. However, he says not to worry, because marine bacteria and viruses are usually way less harmful to human health than those found on land. Glaciers are slowly melting all the time, so that glaciers act as a gene bank of ancient DNA, from which we happen to be making faster withdrawals than usual. The American Office of Homeland Security have invented the Puke Ray. It's a pulsating, colour-changing light show, guaranteed to make you sick. The weapon is a light cannon based on an array of super-bright, light-emitting diodes, LEDs. The weapon estimates the distance to the nearest eyeballs with a laser rangefinder and adjusts the power of the sick light emissions. It strobes the light at high frequencies, which is too bad for people susceptible to epileptic fits. They shouldn't have come into the line of fire in the first place. The light also blinds the target temporarily by phasing through the primary colours so that your eyes can't adjust. The plan is that this will distract you long enough for the coup de grace. The noisier frequency. Homeland Security haven't released the details, but they claim there is one strobing frequency that makes everybody puke. The inventors are enthusiastic about scaling the weapon up for crowd control. Any officers using the puke ray Better hope that protesters aren't wearing mirror shades and reflective clothing. The US Defense Advanced Research Agency has invented a new category of food called ketone polymers. In the old days, there were just three main food groups, proteins, carbohydrates and fats. Now there's ketone polymers. Ketone polymers are a sustained version of ketones. What are ketones? Well... When you run out of carbohydrates and fat, your body starts getting extra energy from ketone bodies, 
which are acidic chemicals produced when the liver breaks down fatty acids. This is your emergency reserve. So these are really important for your brain because they can cross the blood-brain barrier. Now, normally you don't make a lot of ketones unless you're starving to death or you're on the Atkins diet. So DARPA want to produce ketone polymers in food that can be slowly broken down in the body and slowly absorbed. But they're absorbed much more quickly than carbohydrates or fats. So it's the ultimate sugar rush. Rats fed with ketone polymers ran 30% faster and 30% further on a treadmill. They also showed enhanced cognitive abilities. Smarter rats. Human trials of the polymers are expected to start this year. So soon the super soldier serum from the comic books will be here. Thank you, Ian. How do they get those little rats on those tiny little treadmills? And I don't know, that puke ray, that sounds like crowd out of control to me. Coming up next, we have Kashina Allen. She's researching the science behind getting hitched. A healthy marriage. Numerous studies have looked at life expectancy and marital status. Even after social and economic factors, such as poverty and education, are factored in, it seems that married people, particularly men, live longer than their unmarried peers. Marriage, and to some extent long-term de facto relationships, have been routinely linked to lower rates of heart disease, lower rates of respiratory disease, reduced risk of accident and suicide, and even, in some instances, a decreased likelihood of cancer and stroke. People who never marry generally seem to be the least healthy. Those who are widowed or divorced also show increased mortality rates over their married peers, particularly in the couple of years directly after losing their spouse. This is particularly true for those in their 20s and 30s. But what could cause this? Perhaps researchers could be confusing cause and effect. Maybe the old adage, all the good ones are taken, is true. Research has certainly shown that those people who don't marry have comparatively low levels of education and are more likely to be out of work. Perhaps healthier and more successful people make more attractive spouses. This could explain the difference between the health of married and never married people, but it doesn't explain why people who used to be married are less healthy. So it probably comes down to stress. One possibility for stress reduction in marriage comes with the division of labour. In a couple there are two people to share the work of gaining income, two people to divide the costs and two people to share the household chores between. Another reduction may come from the psychological benefits of having a spouse, someone to listen to your problems and provide regular sex. Perhaps marriage even strengthens the desire to look after yourself, encouraging you to keep in shape and work out to remain attractive. A partner may also help to nurse you through minor illnesses, reducing the long-term health effects of these. The benefits may kick in even before old age. A recent unpublished study of graduate students undertaken at Cornell University showed that married men are more likely to graduate, have shorter degrees 
and better publication records and job placement successes than their unmarried peers. Married women don't show the same benefits, but nor are they any worse off when compared to their single friends. One of the strongest social factors in life expectancy and health appears to be the presence of a social network. This extends beyond the spouse and takes in friends, relatives and the entire community. Where people have strong networks, research has shown a reduction in cardiovascular disease and accidental and suicidal death. Marriage may help to provide such a network. Certainly as the proportion of people in one marital status group rises, the health benefits increase also. If you never marry, it is far better to live in a community with a large number of other singles than it is to live in one where everyone else you know is coupled up. The social stigma of being different to the norm seems to cause the problem. This even extends to children born out of wedlock. People born to unmarried parents, particularly those who never marry, have poorer health than their counterparts. A note of warning though. An unhappy marriage may cause increased stress, so probably isn't going to help. Thus any potential benefits can only come from marrying the right, or the right type of person. That's Kashina Allen, Living Her Science. Thanks Kashina.
You're listening to the International Science Radio Show, Diffusion, brought to you across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Whenever life gets you down, Mrs Brown, and things seem hard or tough, and people are stupid, obnoxious or daft, and you feel that you had quite enough. Just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving and revolving at 900 miles an hour. That's orbiting at 90 miles a second, so it's reckoned a sun that is the source of all our power. The sun and you and me and all the stars that we can see are moving at a million miles a day. In an outer spiral arm at 40,000 miles an hour, the galaxy we call the Milky Way. Our galaxy itself contains a hundred billion stars. It's a hundred thousand light years side to side. It bulges in the middle, 16,000 light years thick, but out by us it's just 3,000 light years wide. We're 30,000 light years from galactic central point. We go round every 200 million years. And our galaxy is only one of millions of billions in this amazing and expanding universe. on expanding and expanding in all of the directions it can whiz as fast as it can go at the speed of light you know 12 million miles a minute and that's the fastest speed there is so remember when you're feeling very small and insecure how amazingly unlikely is your birth and pray that there's intelligent life somewhere up in space cause there's bugger all down here on earth Coming up next, we have Patrick Ruby, who's managed to interview Dr. Brian Boyle about the expansion of the universe. The Gruber Cosmology Prize was awarded in 2007 to Supernova Cosmology Project and Hyacinth Supernova Search Team. These two teams discovered that the expansion of the universe was accelerating. So how fast is the universe expanding? I spoke to one of the researchers involved in the Supernova teams, Professor Brian Boyle, Director of the CSIRO Australia Telescope National Facility. The universe uh, is expanding in direct proportion to how far away the universe is from you. Imagine a a sort of big explosion. It's not 
quite the right analogy, but we'll use it nevertheless. The further uh, away you go, uh, the faster uh, the universe is expanding away from you. For every million light years that you go in the universe, you look away uh, from the Earth and the universe, the universe is expanding at around about 20 kilometers a second uh, faster away from you. So if you go a million light years away, the universe due to the uh, Big Bang, the expansion of the universe, is moving away from you at 20 kilometers a second. If you go um, 2 million light years, it's going at 40 kilometers a second, and so on and so on and so on, until uh, you reach the, the furthest uh, reaches of the universe, uh, when the universe is expanding uh, away from Earth at almost the speed of light. So how is it that we're able to uh, measure this expansion? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, of course, we've got no way of measuring the distance uh, directly. We can't go out with a, a ruler or a theodolite or a tape measure and measure the distance between us and the stars physically. Uh, what we have to do is to pick an object of known intrinsic brightness, so uh, if you like, the celestial equivalent of a 100-watt light bulb, and by looking at how dim it appears to us, we can calculate how far away it is. Professor Brian Boyle and the Supernova team needed to use a stellar light bulb that they knew the intrinsic brightness of. They chose white dwarfs, the dense, compact cores of old dead stars. Neighbouring stars dump material onto them when they go supernova. This results in the white dwarfs also exploding, and the brightness of the white dwarf explosion is something that physicists can measure very well. The distance of these stellar light bulbs from the Earth can then be worked out, and they were found to be accelerating away from the Earth. So that then begs the question, what is causing the acceleration? Uh, there's a, a couple of theories about what's causing the expansion. We refer to this discovery as the discovery of dark energy. But precisely what dark energy is, uh, is, is unknown. Dark energy might come in, in two forms. Uh, first of all, there was a, a form called the cosmological constant. This was actually a fudge factor that Einstein included in his equations at the beginning of the 21st century, uh, because when he did his equations for the, the, uh, the state of the universe and general relativity, he discovered, uh, to his amazement, that his uh, equations predicted the universe was expanding. Now, at that stage in the early 20th century, the universe wasn't thought to be expanding. So he included a fudge factor to make the universe static still. Uh, and then when in the 1920s it was discovered that the universe was expanding, he, uh, he removed uh, that fudge factor, uh, which he had called the cosmological constant, uh, labeling it as the greatest mistake in his life. Uh, and here we are now noticing the universe is not ex expanding but accelerating, and we've had to put it back in to, to, to fudge up Einstein's equations uh, again, or at least to uh, at least account for the fact there's something extra uh, to the expansion of the universe. So it could be this cosmological constant, or it could be some sort of weird type of field. Uh, people call it very di different names, things like quintessence, some weird energy of the, the vacuum. Uh, uh, what's called vacuum energy density, the, the energy of, of space itself. Now, the only problem with that is that if you do theoretical calculations, uh, if, if the universe in its very early stage had a vacuum energy density that's still with us today, you would predict that it should have a value that's 120 orders of magnitude greater than we observe it. Either way, there is something uh, very wrong uh, with our theories of the universe, 
that require uh, substantial revision when we find out what the true nature of this dark energy is. Dark energy constitutes about 75% of the energy mass of the universe. Only 4% of the universe is made up of gas, stars and elements containing protons and neutrons, and about half of this is visible with optical telescopes. The rest of the universe is composed of exotic dark matter, supermassive heavy particles created in the early universe. Dark energy is still quite a controversial topic and was not very widely accepted until relatively recently. So will the universe ever stop expanding? Will we find ourselves in a contracting universe where time runs backwards, like in the famous episode of Red Dwarf? Well, this, of course, was, in fact, what we were originally looking for. Uh, you have the expansion caused by the Big Bang, uh, the initial explosion of the universe. And what was thought to happen was that the expansion would slow down as the gravitational force between the matter that was flung apart started to take over. So eventually, you're right, the universe would expand, reach a point at which the, uh, the energy of the expansion was counteracted by the gravitational force of the galaxies and the universe would recontract. I don't think the uh, uh, time would start running backwards necessarily as in your Red Dwarf episode. There's another uh, physical law, a second law the, the law of uh, entropy, that uh, which would gives us a, a certain directionality to time. Um, but it's certainly true that the universe, under those uh, uh, theories, uh, would recontract to a, if you like, a gnab gib, or, or reversal of the Big Bang, or Big Crunch, whatever you want to call it. However, the weird thing is that uh, the universe isn't decelerating due to gravity at all. It's accelerating. This acceleration, if, it's, you know, if we've got our theories of the universe right, won't stop. The universe will continue to expand, and it will continue to expand at an ever greater rate. So eventually, all the galaxies will be immeasurably vast distances from each other. And so uh, we, in, in our little island galaxy, would be completely alone in the universe. In fact, there would be nothing within our event horizon uh, that we could see. Now, of course, that's an, an unimaginably long time. In fact, long before that time, all the stars would have exhausted their nuclear fuel at their center. Uh, they would have exploded. They would have become white dwarfs. Uh, and even those those white dwarfs uh, would have cooled slowly over unimaginably long times. And so the universe ends, not with a bang or a crunch, but very much a whimper. And how will it all end? Essentially, all the universe is, is dead with vast distances between all the uh, individual collections of dead stars and dead galaxies. In fact, if you wait long enough, even the material, the protons and the neutrons that stars are made from, uh, they, these will decay into uh, subatomic particles called quarks, and you end up with a dark, dead quark soup as your universe. Possibly not the most appealing end to it all, but this will all happen in thousands of millions of years' time, long after our time in the universe is over. So until next time, keep on stargazing. And unfortunately, that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, 
you can reach us via email at diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. You can also find previous shows at our website, diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe, Patrick Ruby, and Kashina Allen. Diffusion was produced up in the fluffy clouds of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ed Pollitt. Join us next time for more Diffusion Science Radio.